if you will, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 67 through 80 this morning. It's the prophecy of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. And that'll lead us into chapter 2, which gets back into Christ and the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, which we'll be talking about next Sunday, both in the morning and in the evening, uh, on, on what has come to be known as Christmas Eve. So hopefully you can all make it to those events. I've entitled this message, The Visit. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. Hear now the word of God. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we look at this prophecy that is spoken through your spirit, through the, through the words of Zacharias, we would come to appreciate the depth of it. Help us to know not only what has happened, but the promises contained here that are still happening. Help us, Father, not to look at this as a mere history lesson, but something that affects every one of us this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, according to the Bible, there is a very real sense in which God is ever with us. The fancy word is omnipresent, right? He's always there. And I think the psalmist, as we should, took great comfort in the knowledge that God is always with us. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 139, in 7 through 10, contains these words, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's, that's like death, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall lay hold of me. Wonderful, powerful words of God just doting over us. Yet, there are times when God seems quite absent. One of the things I love about the fact that God employed human beings to write the Bible, and even though it is his word, the passions of the human being who's writing it are not lost. 
with the, the feelings that they have, where it seems as if God isn't around. Habakkuk complained, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Or David wrote this, how long, O Lord, Psalm 13, 1, will you forget me forever? <laughs> whining and complaining, right? How long will you hide your face from me? I'm guessing we've all felt that way from time to time. Like, God, where are you? I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling and stopping. Of course, this apparent absence of God may be his patience. There's a common request among atheists, maybe you've heard some of the debates we've had, that God should make an appearance. Why doesn't he just make an appearance? And I, I think about that. I'm like, this desire you have of God showing up may not bode well for you. You've dedicated your life to be his enemy, and now you want him to show up in the room? How do you think that's going to go? I was really, I was, uh, my, my, one of my relatives is a DEA agent, and he sent me a, a link the other day of a prayer at the Army-Navy football game. It was quite a prayer. Uh, it, this military guy praying, and it was, I think it was a very Christian prayer, but it was also a very, very old-school military prayer, and in the prayer, he was praying, and they were showing like some of the Soldiers kind of like looking up, going, wow, this is, the young guys were like, this is intense. And in his prayer, he said, there is no better friend or worse enemy than a United States warrior. Like, wow, you don't hear that too often. How much more the living God? No better friend, no worse enemy. Be careful when you're saying, I demand you show up. See, we don't always think in those terms that the, that the presence of God may be severe. His apparent, and I say apparent because truly he's never absent, his, his apparent absence is according to his own wisdom, his own timing. What we see in this prophecy that we read of Zacharias, it's called the, the Benedictus because that's the first word in the Latin version, is the ultimate visitation of God. It's the ultimate I'm coming. And he will not come this time by a burning bush or a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke. That's not the way he's coming. That's not this visit. He will enter human history as a human, as a man, truly man, yet still truly God. It's called the incarnation, being made flesh. And with this incarnation, everything's going to change. This visitation changes everything. What Zacharias is prophesying here changes everything. It's the turning point in history. Even the world recognizes it. Even the world recognizes we went from B.C. to A.D. And I know now it's not B.C. and A.D. I know it's B.C.E. and C.E. And if you want to cause trouble when the tour guide uses those terms, just raise your hand and go, was there something that happened that turned it into the common era? What was the event? Because they're trying to hide it, right? They're kind of going, no, but what was it? The turning, you know, when I write a check and I put a date, whose birthday is that? What's the event? It and that is international. It's changed the world. And that is what Zacharias 
is prophesying in terms of this visitation. You might recall that Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, he was struck mute because of his disbelief when he was told that his aged wife would have a child. But that chastisement was going to be temporary. At the circumcision of John, his speech returns, right? He writes, his name is John, and then all of a sudden he can start talking. But God would grant him more than just the ability to talk. Verse 67, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... So he was not only forgiven by God, his loosed tongue became, as it were, an organ of the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying here is no fallible sermon. What I'll say over the next 30 or 40 minutes, some of it might be right and some of it might be wrong. My sermons are not infallible. They're not inerrant. But the word of Zacharias is the word of God, infallible and inerrant. And even though the event where this was all happening was the birth and the circumcision of his son. When we really look at what he's saying here, his son plays a very small part in this prophecy. He begins by explaining the visit. Verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Keep in mind, we've had up until now, 400 years of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist showing up. And this visit of God is going to be glorious. Now he mentions here Israel because it would be through Israel that the Redeemer would come. The Old Testament talked about where he would be born, when he'd be born, the the events surrounding his birth. Really, the events surrounding his birth, the events surrounding his life, events surrounding his death, it's all in the Old Testament. It's all in the Old Testament. It's not as if the Savior of the world was just going to randomly show up. He'd be born in a certain place. And the message of redemption would start there and then move out from that place. You'll often hear people go on and on about, well, you know, your religion is based upon where you were born. It's determined by where you were born. If you were born in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you were born in the Middle East, you'd be you know, a Muslim, if you, you know, and all this stuff. And you know what? That's partially true, but it's no point at all. It's not really making a point, because according to the Bible, that's the way it worked. Not to mention the fact that God would have those who belong to him born at a place and a time where they, were here, where they would hear the message. But the message of the gospel went out. There was a geographical movement, right? Jerusalem, Judea, and then where? Samaria, and then where? Yeah, to the outermost regions of the world. Yeah, where where you're born geographically does make a difference because God said, look, I'm going to start right here. It's not going to be random. It's going to start right there, Bethlehem, and it's going to move out from there. Verse 69, and he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. You know, we learn about the kingdom of Christ from the kingdom of David. There's similarities. But there are a lot of dissimilarities as well. Because the kingdom of Christ, unlike David's kingdom, has 
no end. Of the increase, there will be no end. You know, we, I think it's important for us to kind of recognize those, those people, those things in the Old Testament that teach us about Christ. Peter preached a sermon telling us in Acts 2, 29, one of the earliest sermons we read in the Bible that was at Pentecost, Peter preached, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, he's still dead. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one on one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Well, there's a lot we could say here, but I'm going to leave it to this. And because we live in a culture that is saying, in some sense, that Jesus is not on that throne. When did Jesus take the throne of David? According to this passage, the resurrection. He was resurrected, he ascended, and he took the throne. And I'm just here to tell you, he is currently the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is currently the ruler of the kings of the earth. Verse 70, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began. I recall being questioned and having to research the question a bit about how, how can you believe in a religion that started 2,000 years ago? It seems like kind of a Johnny-come-lately when it comes to religions. <clears throat> I don't believe in a religion that started 2,000 years ago. When was the gospel first proclaimed? The gospel was first proclaimed at the dawn of man, right after the fall. And it was God talking to the serpent, going, you're in a lot of trouble, because the seed of this woman is going to crush you. That was the gospel. That was the proto-evangelicum. It's this idea that God had proclaimed the gospel thousands of years before the birth of Christ. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, because he's talking here about, you know, Zacharias is going, look at it, the prophets have been talking about this. That's the Old Testament. Over and over in those 39 books of the Old Testament, we read of Christ. Jesus Christ, and I'll use this word, I hope it doesn't sound irreverent, had the audacity to say, the Bible is about me. The Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, that is about me. We did a whole series on that, did we not? Notice this also, Zacharias, how, there were a lot of prophets, but he doesn't say the mouths of the prophets. It's the mouth of the prophets. Because even though there are many prophets, they had a singular message. And so they were speaking, as it were, through one mouth. Interesting, Peter writes later that these prophets, they searched diligently after that which was revealed to us. We see in full living color everything they wrote about. They, all, they saw it in types, right? Foreshadows, as it were, kind of black and white. But when Christ came, living color. They wanted to see it. They just saw the trailer. They didn't see the full picture. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. When I look at a verse like that, I think to myself, well, who are these enemies? 
the word hatred is so overused today, right? Every time you don't agree politically with somebody, it's hate speech or something. But who are the ones who hate? Who hates you? I would say when this was written in the broadest sense, what was probably, what most people reading this initially, they were probably thinking Rome, the Roman Empire. We are enslaved to the Roman Empire. And the more faithful you were, the hotter the hand of Rome was upon you. I mean, it was hard to be a faithful person in the first century of Rome. But there was a big problem in the first century, and I would argue we've got to be careful not to enter into that problem today when we begin to think about Christianity as a voting block or something like that. And don't get me wrong, I do think our faith should invade every part of our life, so I'm not saying that should not happen. But there was an initial problem. People mistakenly thought that Rome was the real problem. And let me tell you, Rome is not the real problem. Rome is not the real enemy. You might disagree with what's going on in Sacramento or in Washington, D.C., but let me tell you, according to the Bible, that's not the real enemy. There is a spiritual battle taking place. That's the real enemy. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't? Because sometimes we do, Right? But he's kind of going, look at it. We need to understand who the real enemy is. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual realm that's taking place. And as much as people want to be very naturalistic, people want to go, no, everything is material. No, there are immaterial things taking place. And I think any child who has an open heart can see it. John Calvin explained this passage this way. He wrote, though the church is also attacked by outward foes, and I'm sure that he was thinking of his own era and the initial era and periodically throughout the course of history, and is delivered from them by Christ. How's that for a nice little post-millennial slant? Yet, as the kingdom of Christ is spiritual, It is chiefly Satan, the prince of this world, and all of his legions that the present discourse relates. Zacharias, according to Calvin, he's like, no, the enemy, the one who hates you, right? It's the enemy of your soul, that father of lies, the devil. You need, and his legions, and the forces of darkness by which we are surrounded. Verse 72 to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This prophecy of Zechariah was not plan B. It is not an afterthought. It wasn't like, okay, there's a problem here. Maybe I should do something about it from God's perspective. It was God's plan from eternity past, and it was proclaimed by way of covenant, by way of promise that Christ should come and rescue a fallen World. Remember, Zacharias was a priest. He was probably learned in the scriptures. And so when, this was, when Gabriel said, let me tell you what's going to go on, he recognized this is the fulfillment of a covenant, of a promise that God had made in eternity past. Verse 73, the oath which we, he swore to our father Abraham. This oath. I've always found it fascinating that God would make an oath. You know, when I do weddings, 
we, you know, we have wedding vows, a vow is a promise, you know, made to God. And, you know, you do vows. One of the reasons you do vows is because you know that that what you're about to do is going to be hard. And you make the vow because now you've made a promise before man and God that you're going to do whatever you vowed to do. And it helps you to be strong in it. You, you know, there's an accountability. I've said it out loud. I've said this thing out loud. Everybody heard me. But why would God make an oath? You know, some of us, we make promises, and we might fail to keep them for a couple of reasons. One is the weakness of our own moral nature. We make a promise, and we morally fail. Or maybe because of the weakness of our basic human makeup. We make a promise, and we can't do it. Let me explain. If you're, if you're a spouse, and you promise to be faithful, and you're unfaithful, that's a failure in your moral judgment, and behavior. But if you promise to provide for your family and you have a stroke, you, now you're going to fail because physically you can't do that which you promised to do. My point here is God is not subject to either one of those. He's not going to get sick and he's not going to morally fail. He's not incapable. So it's not to secure his own doubt in himself that he makes the oath. He's not making the oath because he may not do it. He's making the oath for our own security. He's making the oath for us to see it. We read in Hebrews 6, 13 and 14, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. I swear to me saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. I hope, I do hope, and I know I'm just rapidly going through this, but I do hope that we appreciate the magnificent condescension exhibited here that God would go beyond the bare promise and confirm it with an oath. For God to look at us and go, I really mean it. I cross my heart. It's not for him. It's for us to know that God has made a promise. And he'll keep his promise. You know, the promise wasn't, for, as I said earlier, it wasn't first given to Abraham. It was first given, you know, in Genesis chapter 3. But we see it more fully presented in Abraham. It becomes a lot clearer in, you know, chapters 12 and following of, of Genesis. And this is what Paul has to say about that promise God made through Abraham. Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to who? To Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. It was always God's plan for his covenant to be international in nature, to go beyond the borders of Israel and reach torrents. Verse 74, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Let's understand that this great deliverance that we have, and I hope every one of us are part of, does not have as its design the freedom to live in rebellion. We have not been set free from sin and death to live in rebellion. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
I've often seen the Christian faith presented and lived out as if grace means we don't need to be obedient. There's some, somebody last week during Q&A uh, emailed the question, Lordship Salvation. Do you believe in Lordship Salvation? Okay, you know, the, the idea is I can have Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Master. Let me tell you, the Bible doesn't teach that. You're, you're not saved. We're not saved by how well we follow him. Big exclamation point. But if, in fact, we are truly children of God, that will affect the way we live. I have seen too many shipwrecked lives on account of this perverse thinking, this idea that the grace of God means that I can live as I please. Let's heed the words of Paul, again in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, for you were called to freedom... Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? We have been delivered from our enemies that we might serve him. And then he says, serve him without fear. That we, you know, this whole thing about the fear of God, I talked about it last week, it can be a little confusing. Well, am I supposed to fear him or am I not supposed to fear him? Because here, you know, the, the lack of the fear of God is a sign of somebody in rebellion. And yet here we're reading, we can serve him without fear. And I don't want to enter back into my explanation I already gave, but as I was restudying this, Matthew Henry, I think, said it very nicely. And so I'm just going to say what he said. God must be served with a filial filial. Fear That filial, well, I put the definition there, that, that was the kind of fear a child has. It's like a, for their parent, like a loving fear. Like when, when you love your parents, but you're a little bit afraid, right? It's like, you know, I got to make sure the house is clean because I don't want my parents to be upset with me. He goes on, a reverent, obedient fear, an awakening, quickening fear, but not with a slavish fear, like that of the slothful servant who represented him to himself as a hard master and unreasonable. Not with that fear that has torment and amazement in it. Not with the fear of a legal spirit, a spirit of bondage, but with the boldness of an evangelical spirit, a spirit of adoption. I think it's a healthy thing for us to examine at what level we fall into the wrong kind of fear. Right? Do we live... And so often you hear people who are antagonizing the Christian faith going, I don't need a God threatening me in order for me to do the right thing. Well, they have a false view of the Christian faith. That is not the way it works. So we don't, as Christians, we don't live in such a way as to think... If I don't have a good day, God hates me. If I don't have a good day, you know, God's going to eternally punish me. That's, that is not the Christian fear. It is, a, it is a fear of recognizing the holiness of God, the power of God. And again, I spoke to this more in detail last time, so I won't go back into it at that level. Verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. 
You know, God, God has a, the attribute of compassion. Jesus, when he became a person, a human, could feel. And, and God knows that we become weary. It's not as if God doesn't know that you're tired. Why would he write this in Galatians 6, 9? And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's written because people were getting weary, right? You get up and you're like going, this is knocking me out. You know, I just want to kind of let the, you know, pull all the little fingers out of the dam and let everything, you just get tired sometimes of doing the right thing. And God's going, look at, don't get tired of doing the right thing. All the days of our life, that's the prophecy, in holiness and righteousness before him, all the days of our lives, we got to think long term, big picture. I have to say, as I've grown older, you know, as you go through different phases and stages in life, there are certain portions of the Bible that jump out at you a little bit more. And uh, one of them was brought to my attention. I'll call it the spirit of Caleb. What, you remember Caleb? There were Joshua and Caleb. They were the two spies who said, we can take them, right? We can take them. And the other ten spies were like, no, we're like grasshoppers. They'll beat us up, you know, and... And uh, these were the two, you know, that God really honored. So 45 years come and go. Caleb's still around. He's 85 years old. I have to say, I am kind of inspired by this. Caleb is the John Clayton of the Bible, right? (laughs) Only, you know, I don't think John would mind. John's older than Caleb. I didn't have permission to say that, but I know it wouldn't bother him. But this is what Caleb says, because there's another battle coming, right? They're still in battles. Joshua 14, 10, and 11. And now behold, this is Caleb talking, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. Like, okay, I was 40 then, I'm 85 now. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am, (laughs) I would love to hear the tone of this. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. Put me in, coach. My strength is now as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. You getting a little tired? Read Joshua 14, 10, and 11. Be shamed by Caleb. Let's go, man. It's time to... hey. Bell's ringing, got to go out, fight the fight. Verse 76, and now he kind of turns his attention to his own child. This has all been about Christ. And you, child, now he's talking about John, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. It was not unclear to Zacharias, it was not unclear to John the Baptist, what their post was, or what John's post was going to be, and he would operate obediently within its boundaries. He knew his place. He was not the Messiah. He was not the Deliverer. He was not the one who was going to receive all the glory. He knew that early on, and even when Jesus said, 
to, I need you to baptize me. What did he say? No, I, I, you should baptize me. I'm unworthy to tie your shoes. So he never lost that, that spirit. You know, and we did this in Revelation a lot, a study of the moral and religious and political environment during the birth of Jesus reveals to us that Jesus was born at a very, very dark time. So John the Baptist is going to be the first one who shows up during a time when people were hating God, during a time when not only the religious leaders, but the political leaders had the sword out when it came to faithful believers. And John's sermons would reflect that, right? If you look at John's sermons, you, what does he say? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? The axe is at the root of the tree, right? The winnowing fork is in his hand. John the Baptist is kind of come and go like it. You guys better be ready because something big is about to take place. There's a big judgment coming and you better be on the right side of this. You need to repent. I mean, John the Baptist's message was not unclear when we read his sermons. The king has come. And John's role was to proclaim it, to herald it, to blow that trumpet and go, you guys better be ready. We always think of Jesus in these mild terms, but there was another sense in which Jesus came and it was not going to be mild. It was going to be severe. There was going to be a division that took place. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Very persuasive arguments are made that Israel at that time was primarily viewing the Messiah, the Deliverer, as a mere political figure. And again, and I, this shouldn't be shocking to you, I do think that the working out of the Christian faith throughout the course of history will affect every aspect of life. I don't think it will affect economics, the arts, politics, family, obviously the church. And so even though I think that's true, the heart of the Christian faith, the article on which the church stands or falls is justification by faith. It is God reconciling us to himself. The heart of the Christian faith is the remission of sin. The problem we have is a sin problem. That's why when you walk into a church, you know, at least historically, and when you walk into our church, what do you see? You see the font, and you see the communion table because his blood was shed and his body was broken. Why? Right? For the remission of sin. That's the problem. And Zacharias is not straying from what the problem is. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. How? By the remission, by the payment, by the pardoning, by the sending away of their sins. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's always got to be at the heart of the message. If we lose that, friends, we lose the farm. And there it is, the father of John the Baptist, before Jesus was even born, proclaiming that message, 
The problem is a sin problem. Verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. And there he starts moving back from John to Jesus. This idea of day spring, it's literally like from the east. It's the idea of a sunrise. I don't think we understand the depth of darkness that Jesus came into when he was born. And again, we talked a lot about it when we went through Revelation. I mean, what happened when Jesus was born? I mean, what was the big event, right? The king tried to kill him. Man, they had to go to Egypt. They had to get out of Dodge, right? And his whole, the very beginning of his ministry, hostile, hostile, hostile. By who? Everybody. The religious leaders, the political leaders, right? Either the Sanhedrin or Pilate. It was a dark, dark environment. Matter of fact, Jesus, Jesus compared it to the worst environments in history, right? Jesus said, look it, if Sodom and Gomorrah saw what you guys saw, they would have repented. Sodom and Gomorrah was about as bad as you could get. And Jesus was going, you guys are worse. That's how dark the world was. How dark, I mean, people talk about it as if it's true today. That it, Look it, some things were true when the Bible was written that over the course of history have now changed. You know, narrow is the door and few who go through it. Really? So there are some two or three billion professing Christians. By what standard is that few? I think when Jesus said it, it was true. But I think as time went on, it's no longer the case. Matter of fact, he prophesied that it wouldn't be the case because the kingdom of God would what? Grow like a mustard seed. But at the time, it was few. Another thing that was true when the Bible was written, or at least when Jesus, prior to Jesus' coming, John wrote was that the whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one. We have a bad day, we have a bad week, and we're like, oh, well, you know, Satan is in charge. No, you don't understand how dark the world was. Otto Scott, the historian, said prior to Christ, virtually every world religion had some type of human sacrifice. It was a dark, dark world. Jesus said that he came that the ruler of this world might remain for another 2,000 years and kind of keep control? <laughs> That's not what he said. In John 12, 31, Jesus said that he came that the ruler of this world would be cast out. Let me tell you, friends, the devil is a defeated enemy. He is a defeated enemy. An enemy to be sure. But if you resist him, what does the Bible say? He's got to flee. The passage here, this idea of a day spring, of a sunrise, is telling us that the sun is rising. Zacharias is going, look at the sun's coming up. The world is dark. John is a sort of a, a rooster, as I think I mentioned last week, crowing before the sun comes up. But the sun's going to come up. There seems to be an appeal here to Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, for those who don't see it on the screen, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. Sun's coming up. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness 
and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's been said that the world sat as condemned prisoners in a dark dungeon. That's the condition the world was in. Condemned prisoners in a dark dungeon, but the light has now come. But you know, Jesus taught something I think I find very interesting. Jesus taught that it is not in our natures to love the light. We, according to Jesus in John 3.19, we prefer darkness. In our nature, we prefer the darkness. But I'm going to tell you, and I don't want to sound like boastful, I'll t- I'm sitting here and I'm telling you right now, I prefer the light. I don't, I don't want to be self-righteous or something. And I know sometimes the light has shined on me in such a way that I'm like, maybe not that much light. You know, dim it down a little bit. And I bet you most of you prefer the light. Let me tell you, if you prefer the light, it's because there was a special act of God's grace that changed your heart in such a way that you prefer the light to the darkness. In explaining his conversion, Paul recounts his marching orders given by Jesus in Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes. Paul, go and open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The message is not changed. The light goes out and out and out. And you need, and I need, and we need to proclaim the light. But the same thing is true. People who don't know Christ, they're they're not always going to like it. But we need to shine it. Let me tell you something. What I hear is what I have found, is that even though there's this initial resistance and this carnal resistance, there is something within the nature of man where they know something is wrong. And there is something within the nature of man that knows God is. We read that in Romans chapter 1 and Psalm 19. They know God is. And Jesus said that his words, they they are so self-evidently true, they are sufficient to condemn us on the day of judgment. There's something about the word of Christ that people somewhere know that it's true. And so if we don't shine that light, they will never be confronted with that. And as God says in Ezekiel, you know, not to be a guilt manipulator, but their blood will be on our hands. You need to blow the trumpet. If you blow the trumpet and they hear and they don't respond, the blood's on their hands. But if you don't blow the trumpet, blood's on your hands. Boy, let me tell you something else. It's wonderful to blow the trumpet and then somebody hear the trumpet and show up. It's a pretty good day. That, to me, that, that overturns all the bad days. Just like when one person walks in the door, you know, I, even this morning when I was praying, I was praying, Lord, bring, bring one person, you know, who I've invited over the, just bring one person. And it's that, no, I was going to point them out. But when that does happen, it's, a wonder, it's just a wonderful It's a wonderful thing, and I certainly do pray that this deliverance from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God, I hope it's true of everybody in this room. 
Verse 80, so the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. So John, we are told, would continue to be sanctified by God until his ministry would begin 30 years later. And in the next chapter, chapter 2 of Luke, he he will take us now to the heart of the matter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, we do pray, Father, that we will recognize that you are a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And we do pray, Father, that we would not get, get lost in the bigness of this promise and kind of the, the macrocosmic nature of the salvation of the world, even though that's what you've promised, but that we would recognize that these words apply to us personally, individually that we might call upon your name, that we might be redeemed, that we might be saved from the hand of our enemies and those who hate us, the evil one, that we might know who our God is and may rest in his salvation. In his name we pray, amen.